Well, good morning. And uh, how was everyone's Thanksgiving? Give it, give me a, okay, that'll work. Uh, we had a great Thanksgiving as well, just like Dustin said, uh, visiting my family in Phoenix. So it was much warmer than here, uh, coming back to cold, harsh reality. But it was good. I love Thanksgiving. And I don't love Thanksgiving just because of the food, although I'm a sucker for anything pumpkin spice. I have a friend who says PTL for PSL. Praise the Lord for pumpkin spice latte. Uh, I don't love Thanksgiving just because of football, although I love watching football. I don't love Thanksgiving just because of the changing leaves, because honestly, who loves raking? But I love Thanksgiving because of what we have right here, this sense of togetherness, this sense of family. And church family, we have one another. We have brothers and sisters in Christ, this sense of togetherness, you know, we can worship on YouTube or through Spotify on our own individually, but when you gather corporately together to pray together, sing the praises of Jesus together, worship together, dig into God's word together as we are about to do, there's something special and spectacular that happens. And so I guess it's all to say we are thankful for you, thankful for our church family. And so let's go to the Lord now in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear from him in his word. And let's, let's do a prayer of thanksgiving. So actually, here's what I want to do. I know this is cheesy, but I like cheesy. Uh, in the prayer, I uh, actually just shout out, Lord, thank you for fill in the blank. And then I'll pray. So go ahead. Lord, thank you for. Lord, there is so much we have to thank you for, and one day we will for all eternity, which we can start now. We are to have a spirit of thanksgiving constantly. Give thanks continually, always, your word says, in everything, in all circumstances. Because whether good times, blessed times, or difficult times, there is something to thank you for. Most of all, we thank you for you. We thank you for your presence that never leaves us nor forsakes us. We thank you for Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would draw near to you this morning as we dig into your word, speak to us from your text in scripture, and give us a truth to chew on and to let dwell in our hearts and minds that is transformative and powerful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the late 1980s, there was this movie, Dead Poet Society. How many of you have seen that? So the main protagonist is a literary professor named Mr. Keating, played by Robin Williams. And he teaches at an all-boys school. And so Mr. Keating walks in. There's the first day of class. He has a new freshman group. And he walks into the classroom and he says, Psst, hey, fellas. And he beckons them out in the hallway. And out in the hallway, lining the walls are these glass cases holding trophies and picture frames with pictures of graduated previous classes of the school. These, these guys who went to school, grew up, and have long since passed. And Mr. Keating tells the boys, okay, fellas, look at the pictures of these, these guys in these pictures. Notice their faces. Notice the hope, the expectancy. They have a whole life before them. They were just like you in your shoes. 
And if you lean in, if you lean in close enough, you can hear them whisper something. So they, they lean in hesitantly. And Mr. Keating stands behind them and he says, Carpe, Carpe Diem. Carpe Diem, which is a Latin phrase meaning what? Seize the carp. No, I'm just kidding. Seize the day. And it's this existentialist philosophy that forget the future, live for the now, live for the moment, live for the present. And you hear that and it's initially inspiring, it's motivating. And the movie is exactly that. It's very inspirational. But how does it measure up against the biblical philosophy? Because the biblical concept is not forget the future and live for the now. It's live for the future in the now. And there are so many people who have done this throughout scripture. We read in the, in the Bible, men and women. I think about men and women throughout church history who have done exactly that, who have made the best use of their lives for the glory of God. I think about Mark Tamadio. Now, some of you may have known him. Some of you may not. Mark Tamadio was the chairman of the elders at Community Bible Church 10 years ago when Community Bible merged with Bethel to form what is now Bethel Cedar Lake. And I never had the pleasure of knowing Mark, but by all accounts, talking to his wife Brenda and family, friends, loved ones, just hearing story after story, he was a man of humor and joy and resolve and fortitude and oh, how he loved Jesus and it showed. And oh, how he loved people. He would just pour himself out into people. In fact, Brenda, his wife talked about how he invested in four young men, discipling them personally, meeting with them every single week, and all four of those guys are now in ministry. That's awesome, four for four, that's good batting average. He just poured into people. And so I can imagine a week and a half ago, as he's struggling with cancer, his breathing is labored, and he takes his last gasp of air in this life, only to open his eyes in the eternal next, seeing his savior, Jesus, face to face, when Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant, in you I am well pleased. See, I want that. I want that. We should want that. We should want to hear those glorious words from our glorious savior as we see him face to face, well done, good and faithful servant. That should be the motive that drives us to use the rest of our lives for his glory, for his pleasure, making the best use of our time. And really, is that not what the habits of grace are? We've been going through this fall teaching series. In fact, today is the last sermon in this teaching series. How's it been for you guys, by the way? It's been good? I see a lot of thumbs up. It's, man, it has been very enriching for my soul, very nourishing, and I've heard that from others and it's kind of a back to basics sermon series, but it's so needed. We need to go back to basics. And so what are the habits of grace? You know, today's message isn't so much a habit of grace. It kind of is. It's really more a manner in which you do the habits of grace. But let's look at the definition we've gone over the last several weeks. Habits of grace are God-ordained channels of its transforming power into our lives to grow our character into the likeness of Christ. So turn to the book of Psalms. Book of Psalms, kind of roughly in the middle of your Bible, or if it's on your phone, just type in Psalms. The Book of Psalms is the largest book of the Bible, and it has how many chapters, church? 
can't, that's a trick question. There are no chapters in Psalms. I've heard Pastor Steve do that trick question. So there are 150, not chapters, but Psalms. These are hymns, prayers, spiritual worship songs to exalt our God. Why would God include the largest book of the Bible being a collection of worship songs? Well, because songs are powerful. They are beautiful, they're impactful. In fact, neuroscience shows us this exact thing. Neuroscientists tell us that words set to music have a profound impact, a a formative effect on our brains. And if you don't believe me, I'm willing to bet if you have the 50 states of the U.S. memorized, you learn it through a song. I used to have the 50 states memorized. I don't anymore. Do you know why? I forgot the song. <laughs> Words set to music. That's why worship songs are so powerful. You, you'll probably remember the lyrics to How Great Is Our God. You may not remember the finer points of this sermon. Words set to music. And so every one of these psalms is God telling us something. And today we're looking at Psalm 90. So turn to Psalm 90. There's a reason this is in here. Psalm 90 is the only psalm written by Moses. Yes, that Moses. Ten plagues, ten commandments, parting of the Red Sea, that Moses. So it's the oldest psalm that we have. And actually, I'm going to ask that you stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Moses writes this, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and you say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, like a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream. They're like grass that is renewed in the morning and in the, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. you our, our secret sins in the light of your presence for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or maybe by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is nothing but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So here it is, verse 12. Here's the crux. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as as you have afflicted us and as for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor, or some translations say grace of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You guys can be seated. Look at verses one through four. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Home is where the heart is. Or in the words of the great prophet, Dory from Finding Nemo. You can tell we watch a lot of Pixar in our household. We got two little girls. There's this scene at the end of the movie in Finding Nemo where Dory, who forgets 
a lot. She has bad memories. She gets confused and frustrated easily. She's with her friend Marlon, who's looking for his son Nemo. And she looks at him and she says, when I look at you, I can feel it. When I look at you, I'm home. Because home is not a location so much. It's not really a place. It's a state of being. Maya Angelou said, the ache for home lives in all of us. And that's so true. You know, I've known people who are at the hospital. I'll do a hospital visit. Maybe they're in rehab and they're there for weeks. Maybe they're terminal. And all they want is to just go home, literally, physically go home. This longing for home is within all of us. To be where there is love and warmth and acceptance and security. Could it be that this is a God-given echo of our deep yearning for eternal home? Because if God is our dwelling place, as this says he is, and if God is from everlasting to everlasting, which he is, as this says, then it stands to reason that in him we are forever home. See, I feel like that should get an amen. Let's try that again. Rewind it. In God, we are forever home, church. The Lord is our dwelling place. Verse 1. Now look at verse 2. The Lord has no beginning. He has no end. He's everlasting. He's constant from generation to generation. He does not expire, does not die, does not wear out. He simply is. He exists outside of creation and before creation, which makes sense because he is the creator who created all of creation. He is timeless. He is God forever. Look at verse four. A thousand years to the Lord are like a day. Because God is not constrained by time. He's outside the limits of time. He is infinite. So his perception of time is infinitely different than us. We are oh so strictly bound by time. And 2 Peter 3 alludes to this psalm. So look at 2 Peter 3. You can look up on the screens. Peter says in verses 8 and 9, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, it's interesting that our perception of time seems to accelerate with every passing year, right? The older we get, the faster time seems to go. And I know this is true because I now find myself saying, you know, uh, seems like yesterday... <laughs> Dot, dot, dot. Seems like yesterday our seven-year-old who's in second grade was born. I remember holding her in the hospital and looking at sweet Genevieve as a baby, and now she's in second grade. And some of you were like, oh, you think that's something. You just wait. You think it's fast now. You just wait. Wait till she's 18 and graduating high school. Wait till she graduates college. Wait till she meets her husband. Wait till she gives you grandkids. You think it's fast now. It only gets faster. Is that true? Am I right, senior saints? It goes so fast. But the Lord is not slow as some consider slowness. See, we want, we want things to be instant. Microwave popcorn. 30-minute pizza delivery. And honestly, even 30 minutes, we're like, really, 30 minutes? I could pop it in the microwave and it's like, ding, dung, and 10. Come on now. Instant downloads. Or have you seen this Carvana car vending machine? 
Have you seen one of these? There's one in Chicago. It's a vending machine for cars. <laughs> I'm not talking about matchbox cars. I mean life-size human cars. Like you enter in your payment information, you pick your car, and instant car. We can't even wait to buy a car. We want our car now. We live in such an instant world. So in our instant world, we get upset at God when things are not happening as quickly as we would like them to be. Or maybe people make fun of you because you are looking forward to Jesus coming back. And they're like, he hasn't returned. It's been two millennia. It's been 2,000 years. He ain't coming. Well, Peter addresses this in 2 Peter 3. I have news for you. The Lord is always right on time. His time, not ours. And this massively shifts our perspective then because the Lord has an infinite supply of time. Now compare this to us and notice the disparity. Look at verse three. It says from dust to dust. What is dirt made of? Well, chemically speaking, hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, a little sulfur, and minerals. What are we made of? Well, chemically speaking, hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, a little sulfur, and minerals. We are made of the exact same chemical composition as dirt. From dirt we came, and to dirt we will return. From the moment you are born, you have a time stamp. Our bodies start breaking down. And I know this because I feel like every year, every passing year, there's like a new part of me that just hurts. Like, I'll wake up and I'm be like, okay, I guess, well, my knee will hurt for the rest of my life now. Just constant pain. <laughs> and it's not like I, I was in the gym doing 500 squats or I ran an ultra marathon. I bent over to get a jar of pickles from the fridge. Like, <laughs> we're just getting older, folks. You know, I'm doing No Shave November right now. And every year I do this, I don't know why, I guess it's, I like to change my face up, I don't know. It's fun. But every year, I have people will be like, you're getting a little gray in that beard, got a little salt in that pepper. I know! <laughs> I know it, you know it, we all know it, you don't have to point it out. We don't walk around going, nice love handles, woo! <laughs> Boy, those crow's feet are coming in nicely. Looking wrinkly these days. No, we don't want to hear those things because we don't want to be reminded of our aging. We want to slough that off. We want to deny that. But Moses is saying here, that's actually what we have to lean into. By the way, Proverbs 16 says that gray hair is the crown of glory. So this is my crown coming in. <laughs> Some of you have a full crown. You're like, bring it on. So these aches, these pains are reminders that we're getting older. Our bodies will eventually decompose. God created the first person out of dust and he has every right to return us to dust. Look at verses five through 11. Notice how Moses describes the brevity of our lives. Our years are like, verse five, a flood. In 1976, Colorado had the worst natural disaster in state history. There's this canyon right outside of Estes Park, which is near Rocky Mountain National Park. If you've never been there, you should go. It's God's country, it's beautiful. 
The joke is that's where he rested on the seventh day. It's just gorgeous. And there's this river that cuts through the canyon. It's this narrow, rocky gorge. And in 1976, there were hundreds of hikers, people camping, enjoying nature. And there was a storm that came out, came out of nowhere and a deluge of rain happened. They had a year's worth of rain in 70 minutes. Well, that precipitation, that rain had nowhere to go. So it piled up in this narrow canyon and it shot through like a massive tidal wave, wiping out roads, houses, trees, cars, and claiming the lives of 144 people because they couldn't get anywhere. It happened so fast they could not escape. And our lives, our years are like a flash flood. Here and gone in a snap. Our years are like a dream. Look at verse five. You ever have a dream that you just want to wake up from, but it's not happening? You feel like it's lasting a lifetime. This is a long dream. Do you know how long dreams last in reality as you're going through REM sleep? On average, five to 10 minutes. The longest dreams are 30 minutes. Shortest dreams are about a few minutes. Five to 10 minutes, that's it. Your, our years are like a dream. And not only that, but when you wake up, it's over. You are instantly transported from dream world to reality. Our years are like a dream. Our years are like grass, verses five and six. In a dry summer desert climate like they have in Israel, you might have some lush green landscape, but it can be instantly changed to brown, parched, dry scenery with just a few hot summer days. Think about a dandelion. You know, dandelions look pretty. There's this, they're the cute little yellow flowers. We have hundreds of them in our yard. And overnight, it seems like, they turn into these soft, billowy, cottony, white, puffy things that are really pretty. Our daughters love to pluck them, and they'll go, all the seeds go everywhere. And we're like, no, 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 no. Blow those in the neighbor's yard. <laughs> They're here one second, gone the next. Charles Spurgeon said the lifespan of grass is sown, grown, blown, mown, and then gone. Our life is like grass. Our life is like a sigh. Look at verse nine. Everyone breathe in. Go ahead, breathe in. Hold it. Now breathe out. How long did that take? A few seconds? Our lives are like a breath, they're like a sigh. And these incredibly short-lived illustrations are sobering. Those who are healthy and strong in their youth will be old, cold, pale, and frail at the end of their lives. Beauty fades and stomachs sag. We don't like to be reminded of these things, yet we are constantly reminded of and threatened by our impermanence. No wonder we love instant things. Our lives are instant. We don't have time to wait. They're here one second, gone the next. Life is short. Moses says in verse 10, we live to about 70 to 80 years, and he's right. Do you realize globally the average life expectancy is 73.2 years, 70.8 for men, and 75.6 for women. So congrats, women. You live much longer than us. I didn't know why that was, by the way. So I Googled, why do women live longer than men? And there was this picture, this meme, of a guy with a ladder on top of a ladder. 
to get on his roof and the caption said, here's why women live longer than men. <laughs> Somewhat true. But why? Why is life so short? Listen, I, I, and I realize, by the way, some of you are over 80 and some of you are going to live to be 100. Praise God. But some of you, and this pains me to say, you might be in your 20s and you will not be here this time next year. Why? Why is life so short? Well, look at verses 7 through 9. The problem of our mortality is the problem of our morality. Because of sin, namely our sins, the result is death, for the wages of sin is death. Now, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news. But the penalty, the payment of sin is death. These are the consequences of the fall of mankind. We rebelled against the creator of life, the sustainer and giver of life, and therefore it makes sense that we have chosen death. Death is a reminder of our sin. Death is that horrific, utmost, devastating consequence of our sin. Now again, here's a stark contrast. God is holy and eternal, and we are so weak and frail and sinful. Well, this is depressing, Pastor. I come to church to be encouraged, and all I hear is, your life is a snap. We're all going to die. Woo! How uplifting. But that's the whole point. Listen, this is the point. We don't want to talk about how fragile and brief our lives are. We want to live in ignorant bliss. But what if realizing how short life is is actually the epiphany we need to live our lives better? And that's Moses' point. Look at verses 12 through 17. Moses gives a series of six successive petitions in his prayer. He says, have mercy on us. Satisfy us. Make us glad. Show us your glory. Let your grace be upon us. But the first one is verse 12. And this is, this is key. This is a key verse. This is the crux. In fact, here's what I want, to, want you to do. I want you to stand. We're going to memorize this verse together right now. And in the process, I'm going to kind of teach you how I memorize Scripture personally. I'll, I'll go over a verse over and over and over in my head till it's locked in my brain. Repetition is the mother of memory. And then I add a phrase, and then add a phrase, so on and so forth. So I'm going to have you repeat after me. So teach us. Oh, come on, do it with some gusto. So teach us. So teach us. One more time. So teach us. Okay, so we're going to add the next phrase, which is to number our days. Okay, so let's do the whole thing. Ready? Repeat after me. So teach us to number our days. So teach us to number our days. One more time. So teach us to number our days. Okay, we're going to add the last phrase. Okay, we're on the home stretch. Here we go. We're going to get this. The last phrase is that we may get a heart of wisdom. So let's put it all together. Repeat after me. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. All right, let's do it one more time all together. Ready? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90, verse 12. Don't forget the address. You always have to remember the reference. Otherwise, you're going to be like, where was that verse again? You guys can be seated. Give yourselves a hand. That was awesome. You just memorized a verse together. Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Number our days. Meaning take stock of the brevity of your life. People rarely contemplate their own demise. 
In the early 1900s, there was a movement in metropolitan areas, U.S. cities all over the country, to actually literally physically move cemeteries outside of city limits. Now, part of this was because of the massive population growth, but some of it was because they just didn't want to see signs of death. In fact, San Francisco has a fascinating history of this. It is literally illegal. They have banned the ability or right to bury the dead within city limits. And a big reason is because they had such disdain for signs of physical death. And yet Ecclesiastes 7.2 tells us, better to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting. That verse always baffled me. God, are you telling us it's better to be around people who are weeping and grieving than to be with someone who's partying? Yes. Because death has that powerful effect of reminding us of our frailty. It's why funerals are prime time to preach the good news of Jesus. Because I can't think of a moment in our lives where we are more cognizant, more aware of our own mortality, more aware that you know, we are mortal, that we are frail, thinking about life and death, what happens to us after we die, than at funerals. People are awakened temporarily from the false stupor of indestructibility. They are literally in those funerals numbering their days. That's why if anyone ever asked me to preach a funeral, to do a funeral, but if they're like, you know, I don't want you to preach Jesus, leave the gospel out, I'm gonna say, well, then you need someone else to do your funeral. Because people need Jesus in those moments. They need to see the glory and beauty surpassing worth of Jesus when they're thinking about spiritual things, life and death. Death has that effect on us, to number our days. So we need to number our days, but not just number our days for numbering days' sake, but so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. If you knew that you only had one day left in your life, how would you spend those remaining 24 hours? Chances are, how you answer that question shows, reveals what you value most in life. People will always do what they value. So I'm pretty sure you're not gonna be like, well, I gotta go play Fortnite. <laughs> I got that one level I have to beat. I'm gonna go play video games. No, you're gonna spend that remaining time with loved ones, with family, with friends. You might be telling everyone you know about Jesus because what do you got to lose? What are they gonna do, persecute me? I'm gonna die in 24 hours anyway. See, our, our, our realization of the brevity of life reorients our priorities and values, we do what really matters. And isn't that what the essence of wisdom is? Wisdom is living for God's glory according to God's values. So why don't we live like this? Why don't we live like we have nothing to lose? Why don't we live as if every day could be our last? Well, I think one of God's initial commands was for humanity to steward his creation. He told Adam and Eve in the garden, be fruitful, multiply, cover the earth. And then he put them in charge as stewards over his creation. So it makes sense that we have a very real spiritual enemy who wants us to disobey that. He wants us to waste our time, know his playbook. I, I call this a glitter tactic. See, when you're saved, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, the God of this world, that's Satan, blinds the minds of unbelievers from seeing the glory of the gospel of Jesus. 
He doesn't want people who don't know Christ to see Jesus as the Savior, as our Lord. But once you are saved, listen, followers of Jesus, listen to me. Once you are saved, you are secure in Christ. Satan cannot have your soul. That's good news. Come on now. Your souls are secure in Christ forever. Amen? That's such good news. But Satan, once you are a follower of Jesus, he changes his tactic. And now he tries to distract you with the glittery. Look at this shimmering thing, this shiny thing. Waste your time on this or that. And these things are not inherently evil. I mean, we think about social media. Do you realize that the average person spends two and a half hours a day on social media, three to four hours watching TV, and four to five hours on their phones? We're just like zombies mindlessly wasting our time on our phones like, going from one thing to the next. Again, these things are not inherently evil, but they can be the worst things if we make them the ultimate things. They are, they can be colossal time sucks. They just suck the time out of us. These are black hole vortexes of counterproductivity. John Piper, who is a a well-known Christian author, speaker, former pastor, He was able to preach at the Passion Conference in May of 2000. Passion Conference is a conference of thousands of young adults, college age. And he's preaching a sermon called Don't Waste Your Life, which is a really good sermon I'd I'd encourage you to, to watch or listen to later. And in the middle of that sermon, he talks about two ladies from his church who were both around 80 years old who went to Cameroon to do mission work. They come, you know, nearing the end of their life, they're... They don't know how many years they have left, and so they're saying, we want to live for Jesus. We want to go tell people about Jesus, to the glory of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, through the love of Jesus, so we're going to go do that. And they do. They come alongside some missionaries, and they minister with their remaining days, and they hop in a Jeep together, and they're driving along, and they try to hit the brake, but the brake goes out, and they go careening off a cliff to their death. And at that moment, Piper asks thousands of young adults, is that a tragedy? He says, no, that's not a tragedy. They lived the remaining years for the glory of God. He says, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. And he pulls out this article from Reader's Digest, and he reads about this couple, middle-aged couple, late 40s, early 50s, who took early retirement, bought a boat, and their sole mission in life, their goal was to go from shore to shore collecting seashells. Nothing wrong with collecting seashells or retiring or buying a boat, but that's all they wanted to do with their lives. He said, that's a tragedy. What are you going to do? Stand before Jesus? Jesus, here it is, my shell collection. Don't waste the remaining years of your life. We don't know how much time we have. Don't waste them because there is no retirement from the kingdom of God. Use your life for God's glory. Now, we could all regret the time we have wasted in the past, and I have wasted so much time in my life. I waste time even, even now, but can't do anything about that. The time in the past, leave the past in the past. We can't hop in a DeLorean and go back in time. Besides, we live by grace. And so we move on, and we number our days 
meaning we reshuffle the deck according to God's values and priorities. So what are the only things in this life that will move on into the eternal next? One word, relationships. Relationships with our God and with one another. It's the only lasting eternal thing in this life. So how can we invest in our relationship with God and with others? Well, that's the habits of grace. That's how you do that. You live for what transcends time. You live for what's eternal. So when you look at how you spend your time, evaluate things on the eternal scale by how relational something is. If it's highly relational, spend time doing it. If it's low relational, don't spend as much time doing it. Every breath we have is from the Lord. Every second is stewardship. So will we use our time for self or for our Savior? They say that if you were to pool all the gold in the entire world, just collect it all, it would be equivalent to four Olympic-sized swimming pools. Now, that's a lot of gold. But if you think about it, it's not really, because that's all the gold that this earth has. It's all the gold in the entire world. And so it's a diminishing resource. The more it's mined, the more it's used, the less we have of it, and the more its value goes up. Time is the most precious, limited commodity that we have. You only have so much of it. And it's an ever-diminishing resource. So how will you use this ever-diminishing resource? I think the older we get, the more sentimental we get. The more careful we are with our time. I remember when I was younger, when I was a teenager in college, man, I wasted so much time doing the dumbest things. I just thought, you know, I'm going to live forever. We have oodles of time. And when, as you get older, you realize, no, we don't. You know better. Time is precious. So how should we use our remaining years, months, weeks, days, hours, minutes, and seconds? We'll look at verses 14 through 17. Verse 14 is a key right here. Satisfy us in the morning, Lord, with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Be satisfied in the steadfast love of the Lord. Satisfy. Such a perfect, poignant, strategically word that he intentionally uses here. Satisfy. You know, the Lord satisfies our deepest longings, our deepest wants and desires. And he created us that way. So we go through life and we search and search in this life for meaning and contentment and fulfillment and joy, but he is our contentment. He fulfills us. He gives us purpose. He gives us meaning. He brings joy to our hearts. You might say it's all about him. Blaise Pascal, who was a 17th century mathematician and theologian, he said it this way. This is so good. He said, what else does this craving, this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is an empty trace. Oh, he tries in vain to fill this with everything around him, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be only filled with an infinite and immutable object, namely God himself. He's saying that we, every single person, has a God-shaped hole this God-shaped vacuum that is infinite, that can only be filled with God himself. And yet we try with things in creation to fill it with all these finite things, filling an infinite gap with finite things, trying to satisfy, trying to be satisfied. 
but it can only be satisfied by the one who is eternal and infinite, God through Jesus. Be satisfied in him. Be satisfied, namely, by his love. It's this powerful Hebrew word, chesed. H-E-S-E-D, chesed. It's the word used in Psalm 136. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The chesed of the Lord endures forever. We don't have an English equivalent of this word in our language. So it's describing the consistent, ever faithful, unending, unconditional, no strings attached, relentless, steadfast, loyal, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, furious love of our Father God. That's the steadfast love. And so we can cry out, oh Lord, your faithful, steadfast love is what we have been looking for all our lives. So in you, I'm home. We are home. We have finally found our forever home. That's why Moses writes in verse 14, rejoice and be glad in him all our days. That's how you're satisfied in the Lord. You rejoice in him. You delight in him. You treasure him. That's why he says in verse 16, essentially, Lord, show us your glory. Why? So again, we may be satisfied in him. Verse 17, Lord, we need your favor. We need your grace for this to be possible. Lord, establish the work of our hands. Now again, all this sounds like habits of grace because it is. These are the means by which we draw near to and rejoice in and are satisfied by our God. So bottom line, main idea is this. Life is short, so live for what lasts. In the eternal God, we find true life and hope. Now let's make this practical. For the last few minutes, let me give you the ABCs of time stewardship. You can write these down if you want. ABCs of time stewardship. A, assess your calendar. Look at your average weekly schedule and literally make a list of how you spend your time. Write down the things you do and how much time you do on each. What are your top three? What do you spend the most waking hours doing? Assess, evaluate your calendar. B, Base your task list and schedule on values. So you've made a list of how you spend your time. Now make a list of values, biblical, godly values, and compare the two. Pray over this. Think about what really matters in life. How can you make your hours, your, use your days for eternal value? Remember, relationships are the only things that last past this life with God and with others. So does your current calendar align with eternal values? If not reprioritize and readjust. Which leads to the third one. Assess your calendar, base your task list and schedule on values, and C, control your calendar before your calendar controls you. Trim the fat. Eliminate what you need to eliminate if it doesn't match your values. David Mathis uses this illustration. He's the author of Habits of Grace that our small groups are going through. And he talks about if you are filling this jar with rocks, like you have small pebbles and big stones, you want to put the big stones in first. So imagine this is prioritizing time with the Lord. So we're going to put that in. And then you want to prioritize time with family. So you put that in as well. You block that off. And then, of course, you want to prioritize time with brothers and sisters in Christ and Christian community. So we put that in. And... You need time for rest, like was talked about last week. Sabbath rest, so we schedule that as well. 
And you need time with those who don't yet know Christ so you can live on mission, so you can point them to Jesus with your words and actions, so you put that in as well. You make sure the big stones are in there. And then all the things in life, all the little pebbles, fill in the cracks and fill in the rest of your calendar. Now, if you were to put the little pebbles in first, what would happen? You don't have room for the big stones. You need to prioritize what really matters in life, what really has value. Put the big stones in first. Now, productivity specialists call this block scheduling. And so, literally, on your calendar, in your Google calendar, schedule time with the Lord, date night with your spouse, family dates, time with your small group, time to just rest in the Lord. Block schedule, put those Big stones in first, and everything else will fall into place afterward. And allow for some flexibility. There is grace in this. Church, the point is this. The eternal one stepped into time and defeated death so that we who are transient could spend eternity with him. So it's in our best interest to know him and help others do the same. He is our source of hope.